I know we've been uh, already praying some this morning, but I want to take a moment uh, to pray uh, as well. God, thank you for drawing us to uh, this place today, uh, or Father, uh, drawing us to the place uh, we are, uh, whether we're watching this online, uh, listening to it, we thank you. And Father, as we've explored friendship over the last couple of weeks, and we do that again today, I just pray, Lord, that you would draw us into your story, uh, that you would help us to imagine what friendships can look like when they honor you, when they're built upon your teaching and your word. Uh, Father, that we might develop as friends ourselves and might come to experience the types of friendships we talk about, that as we navigate life in a world full of complexity and difficulty, a world full of joys and sorrows that we would come to experience um, just incredible friendship. And God, teach us. Uh, show us your word and show us your way. Uh, Father, I pray for those that are here or those that are watching that don't yet know that intimate friendship and relationship with you, that you through your word and through your spirit, would draw them toward you this morning. Um, I pray, Father, for those that are um, disciples who have journeyed with you for a long time, that you would draw them deeper and show them uh, one more way you can shape and carve our lives, their life, uh, to look like your son. Uh, Father, go before us. Um, work in our hearts. Uh, transform us into your likeness. And it's in your name we pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Jonathan was the son of the king. Jonathan was the firstborn son of the king, the king of Israel. Jonathan was the one who would succeed his, succeed his father as the next king of Israel. Jonathan grew up wanted, welcomed, and wealthy. Jonathan had influence. Uh, Jonathan had all that he could hope for. Uh, Jonathan had all that anyone could hope for. David was the son, not of a king, but the son of a shepherd the son of a working-class man. Well, while Jonathan was honored and respected as the firstborn, David was forgotten, ignored, neglected as the youngest of several brothers. David didn't know the royal robes of royalty. Uh, he knew the shepherd's staff and the wilderness. And yet, as we've explored over the last few weeks, David and Jonathan enjoyed an uncommon friendship. They overcame what would be glaring differences and overwhelming obstacles to experience an intimacy and a closeness as friends that many of us long for. They had an uncommon friendship. Tom Hudner was the son 
of a Harvard graduate, a successful businessman. Uh, Tom Hudner's father owned and operated eight grocery stores across Massachusetts. Uh, Tom Hudner's father owned and operated an exclusive country club in Falls River, uh, Massachusetts. Tom Hudner knew wealth, Tom Hudner knew influence, Tom Hudner knew what it was to be a a prominent individual in his city. Uh, Even though he was growing up in the post-depression, or or maybe even some would say depression era in our country. Uh, Tom's spring spring breaks consisted of all the pleasures of youth. Swimming pools, hanging out with friends, heckling golfers on the golf course, uh, all the things that maybe a junior high or high school teen could uh, think of. Tom Hudner knew multi-course dinners. Tom Hudner knew uh, expensive clothes. Uh, Tom Hudner never had to worry about having shoes on his feet. Jesse Brown uh, was the son not of a Harvard business graduate, not the son of a wealthy owner or businessman, but he was the son of a sharecropper. Jesse Brown's father was a graduate of the School of Hard Knocks and suffering in racial prejudice and injustice. Jesse Brown grew up not in Falls River, Massachusetts with influence and wealth, but he grew up in a small community outside of Hattiesburg, Mississippi, a little place called Lux, Mississippi working the land with his father. Jesse Brown's spring breaks consisted not of the pleasures of youth, but when the school system would schedule a strategic two-week break in the spring, Jesse and his brothers would find themselves out on the land, hoeing weeds and cotton fields and getting watermelon fields ready. Jesse Brown didn't live in a beautiful home like Tom near a country club in Massachusetts, but instead found for his home a cabin whose roof leaked when it rained, whose walls shook when the train came or the wind blew. And yet, Tom Hudner and Jesse Brown became incredible friends. In an unlikely course of events, uh, Tom Hudner came and graduated the Naval Academy, became a pilot. Uh, Jesse Brown uh, got accepted, which was unusual, to the Ohio State University, uh, always wanting to follow the great uh, track star Jesse Owens and, and, and his fame. And he went to Ohio State and after two years saw an ad uh, on a poster board that the Navy was recruiting. And so... Jesse entered the Navy, and their paths crossed because Jesse became uh, the first black naval pilot in our Navy's history. And Tom Hudner was a well-decorated Naval Academy graduate and pilot himself. And the two became incredible friends. They overcame immense differences and overwhelming obstacles, and they shared an uncommon friendship Uncommon friendship, uh, uncommon devotion. David and Jonathan's relationship, as we've talked uh, the last few weeks, was marked by this uncommon devotion and commitment to each other. Uh, 
they, they overcame these differences that many would have said would have kept them from being close friends, and yet they enjoy this intimate friendship. We, we saw the words over the last couple weeks in 1 Samuel 18, uh, verse 1, where it says that after David had talked to Saul, that Jonathan became one in spirit with David. And we've looked at that phrase, and it talks about their souls attaching to one another. It's this figurative expression of, of, of this intimacy, this closeness that they shared in their friendship. And we've, we've looked to see how that plays out in the pages of 1 Samuel and, and 2 Samuel, how they, they had this, this deep intimacy together. David tells us in 2 Samuel that, that the love that Jonathan had for him was better than the love of all the women that he experienced. They had this just deep, close, intimate relationship, this uncommon devotion and the goal really has been the last couple of weeks to, to look and to look at their relationship, to look at their friendship and say, how can we, how can we have that type of friendship? What, what elements were present in their enduring friendship? What elements were present to give them that enduring friendship? And so week one, we looked at their encouragement. We looked at a powerful passage in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 23 where Jonathan seeks out David when he's hiding from Jonathan's own father. And it tells us in verse 16 of 1 Samuel 23 that Jonathan went and strengthened him in God. He went and encouraged him. Uh, last week we looked at loyalty, how enduring friendships are characterized by loyalty. We looked at that covenant love that David and Jonathan shared with each other, that faithfulness they had for one another. And the whole goal in this is that maybe we could explore how we can have those types of friendships. Uh, you can read the surveys, you can study the research, and, and you can see that, that friendship is difficult uh, in America today. Uh, in spite of having more ways to connect than we've ever had before, more people report how lonely and isolated they feel. We're starving for reliable friends. Proverbs chapter 18, uh, verse 24, it's kind of been the umbrella for our series. It says that a man with unri unreliable friends soon comes to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. How can we be that friend? Uh, we can encourage, we can be loyal. The, the, the hope is, is that we can grow to be the friends that God wants us to be, because as we've said throughout this series, we cannot control what someone else does. You cannot make someone else be loyal. You cannot make someone else an encouraging friend. You cannot make someone else be the friend that you want. All you can do is allow God to foster through you, through his spirit, uh, and help you be the friend that other people need. But, but here's the beauty, is that if we each choose to be that type of friend, guess what we experience? We experience those mutual friendships, the, the mutual encouragement. We experience the loyalty with one another. And so we're looking to this uncommon friendship to see and explore their uncommon Devotion, their uncommon friendship was marked by uncommon devotion. Like David and Jonathan, uh, Tom Hudner and Jesse Brown's relationship uh, was an uncommon friendship marked by uncommon devotion. We saw how David and Jonathan had some just passions in common in week one of this series. And if we look to Tom Hudner and Jesse Brown's life, we see the same thing. Uh, they, they both had hearts of courage. They both had hearts for the vulnerable and the oppressed. They both had hearts to come around and come alongside those who maybe were being pushed down. Uh, Adam Makos in his book, Devotion, tells the story of when Tom Hudner was a 13-year-old at his school in Falls River, Massachusetts, how he sat and watched one day in the cafeteria as this group of boys uh, began to bully um, the sons of Portuguese immigrants. 
taking their glasses off their heads, yelling slurs at them, and Tom remembers something welling up inside of him to come to their defense, and so he asked his friends to join him, and they politely declined, and so Tom crossed the cafeteria and stood up to those bullies, to which the bullies issued an invitation. Uh, How about you meet us after school, and we'll settle this the old-fashioned way. Uh, The author goes on to share from his interviews with Tom how Tom was uneasy, and yet he knew he had to do it, and so he met those bullies outside on the playground that afternoon. And just when they thought fists were going to fly, the bully, Manny, reached out his hand and shook Tom's hand. And he goes on to write how from that day forward, uh, that Portuguese immigrant boy was not picked on the same. He tells the story of Jesse Brown at a similar age, again, not in Massachusetts, but in Mississippi, and how he and his brothers often would walk this dirt road home following school or following work in the field. And each day as they would walk home, uh, the students at the all-white school had privileges that they didn't have, and they would get a bus ride home. So about every day as they were walking Uh, That bus full of white students would pass by on the dirt road. It would slow and kick up dust all over Jesse and his brothers, and inevitably something else happened each day. Some of the younger boys in the back of the bus would put down the windows, and they would hang their heads out, and they would yell racial slurs, and they would spit upon Jesse and his brothers. This happened over the course of several days, and Jesse had had enough, and heard the bus coming down the dirt road one day, and knowing that it would be a huge risk, he grabbed a a dry corn stalk from the side of the field and picked it up, and he he stood nearer to where the bus would pass and had his brothers hide in the woods, and as the bus came down the road and the windows came down and the heads came out, Jesse started slapping them with the corn stalk. Uh, the, The bus screeched to a halt, and Jesse was worried what would happen. A white bus driver steps out, and comes over to Jesse and he says, what's the problem, young man? And Jesse said, well, every day when you drive down this road, these boys in the back of the bus run on their windows and this is what they say and this is what they do. And the bus driver said, well, that won't happen anymore. So the bus driver got up on the bus and Jesse heard, couldn't make out all the words, but he heard that bus driver yell at those kids and it never happened again. The stories go on with Tom and with Jesse and the things they shared in common that were based on the courage. Again, they were both Navy pilots. Um, They were devoted to each other to show Tom's devotion. Jesse had more flight experience than Tom, and so when they were assigned to the same flighter squadron on the USS Leyte off the the coast of of Massachusetts and New England, and they were preparing to go and to to possibly get involved in the Korean War, uh, even though Tom was the higher-ranking officer, Jesse had more experience, and so Tom willingly became Jesse's wingman. It's a story of uncommon friendship marked by uncommon devotion. So as we talk about friendship, I just wonder, have you tasted that type of uncommon friendship? Have you tasted that uncommon devotion? Have you had people that you connected with and would do things for you and shared similar hearts and passions uh, with you? If you have, you know this, and if you haven't, you'll learn this, that to be an uncommon friend and to be uncommonly devoted, it requires uncommon sacrifice. And what I want to focus on in the last part of our message today is the uncommon sacrifice that's required for these friendships that are uncommon, that are marked by uncommon devotion. 
We see this in David and Jonathan's relationship. We're gonna go back to 1 Samuel 18 again. We've used this kind of as our launching pad, our springboard, whatever you wanna call it, to jump into friendship each week. I read the whole first four verses that kind of summarize the beginning of their friendship in week one. I just kind of want to end our series by reading it again. First Samuel 18 says, after David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Verse four, Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic, and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. I want to focus just on verse 4 today. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic, and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. If you were to read 1 Samuel in the Hebrew that it was originally recorded in, you would see a Hebrew word for robe here that's used elsewhere, and it always designates the royal robe. The robe that Jonathan gives David is his royal robe. It's that robe that, that signifies that he is the son of the king. It's the robe that grants him access. It's the robe that gives him influence. It's the robe that causes other people in the streets to stop and to stare and to, to move out of the way to give him space. It's the, the robe that, that brings about privileges and, 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 and opportunities. And yet Jonathan gives that robe to David. But he doesn't stop there. He gives his tunic. Again, the word here for tunic likely refers to uh, the garment that a warrior would wear. And so Jonathan not only supplies his royal robe to David, but he gives him his warrior's garments. We, we know that, da that Jonathan was a great warrior. We, we read his story in 1 Samuel 13 of scaling the cliffs near Michmash and slaying Philistines. And so Jonathan gives him this, this garment that, that represented valor courage and a willingness to fight for Israel. But it doesn't stop there. He gives him his sword. Historians say that in this time in Israelites' history that uh, their swords often were sheathed on their belts and so Jonathan gives him his belt. And then Jonathan gives him his bow. When we read on into 2 Samuel and we meet Mephibosheth's son, what would have been Jonathan's grandson, uh, we learn how good he was with the bow. It seems that Jonathan's family was skilled with the bow. In fact, there's a story uh, in this friendship of David where Jonathan can accurately shoot an arrow to help inform David of his father's intent. So these tools, these robes, these weapons that mean so much to David, I mean to Jonathan, he willingly gives to David. Some of them are one of a kind. There's only one royal robe given to the firstborn son, and yet he willingly gives that up. It's, a, it's this picture of incredible sacrifice. Now, some have said, why did Jonathan make that sacrifice? Uh, that, that, that maybe he gave it because it was his way of recognizing David as the next king of Israel. 
In fact, we have in what we call extra-biblical resources, uh, things outside of Scripture that date to the same time period in other ancient Near Eastern civilizations, a similar practice where someone would give their royal robes and their, their royal belongings. It was a way of saying, hey, uh, I'm going to abdicate my throne. You're going to be the next king. That may have been what Jonathan had in mind, but we just don't know. And so I don't want to speak as though that's the truth. Uh, the Word of God doesn't tell us that. And so uh, the thing we need to recognize up front is that this, at the very least, though, was sacrificial. He gave up these garments, uh, these weapons that were so valuable. But we do know that he gave up more than that because there was a point when he recognized that he would not be king. Uh, that passage we read a few weeks ago in 1 Samuel 23 from Jonathan's own lips, he tells David that David will be king and he won't be king. So at some point, whether it was early on or towards the end, we know that he came to realize that he would not be on the throne. Verse 17 of 1 Samuel 23, as Jonathan talks to David, he says, don't be afraid. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel and I will be second to you. Even my father Saul knows this. We know from elsewhere in Israel's history that if someone wanted the throne, they wanted to contest the throne, they could have. Jonathan could have said, no, I'm going to fight for this. This is my right. But he willingly sacrificed and said, you know what? I'm going to be second. You know what, David, you can be king and I'll be your right hand. As you look across the world, we know from story after story that often it takes even greater strength and courage and sacrifice to be the second in command than it does to be the first in command. You give up notoriety, you give up some of your influence, you give up some of your power, and you humbly submit, and that's what Jonathan does. He sacrifices, but he sacrificed even more. You can read a story in 1 Samuel chapter 20 when uh, following this time in chapter 19 when uh, Saul tried to pin David to the wall with a spear. Saul gets upset with his own son, Jonathan, and he tries to throw a spear at his own son. So uh, Jonathan and his father's relationship is damaged. There's sacrifice even there. So we see this uncommon friendship marked by uncommon devotion, and it's fueled by uncommon sacrifice. Uh, Tom and Jesse's friendship was uncommon, marked by uncommon devotion, fueled by uncommon sacrifice. Uh, the date was December 4th, 1950. After being in the Mediterranean Sea for months, practicing uh, their flying on these F4U Corsairs that Tom and Jesse flew, having mock battles on the island of Crete to prepare, finally, uh, the USS Leyte was called to the Pacific Fleet. On December 4th, 1950, Tom Hudner and Jesse Brown were on the aircraft carrier, the USS Leyte, when the orders came. Uh, what had happened in the weeks prior to December 4th, 1950, uh, as the North Korean forces were suffering heavy casualties, uh, Stalin, who had since turned on the Allied forces, was worried that the communist ideals of Russia were being threatened. Uh, began manipulating the Chinese to help them see that their whole hope for their country was going to be jeopardized if the South Korean forces backed by America and Great Britain uh, prevailed. 
And so in the weeks leading up to December 4th, 1950, uh, the Chinese volunteer army uh, in a mass of some 500,000 moved into North Korea. And the Marines there started taking heavy casualties. In fact, there's a whole group of them that were called the Lost Legion because of the loss that was inflicted in them north of the 38th parallel. As they were suffering heavy losses, they, they sought to turn the tide of the war. And so orders came to the crew of the USS Leyte that uh, the flighters, the flight squadron that Tom and Jesse were a part of needed to come and provide ground cover. The F-4U Corsair had been uh, equipped with machine guns and, and few bombs to fly low, some hundred feet, sometimes just a few hundred feet off the ground to, to go before and push back the enemy in front of the Marines. 1.45 p.m., December 4th, 1950, uh, Jesse Brown's plane, uh, World to Life. The propeller began turning, and it took off and exited the aircraft carrier. Thomas, his wingman, followed behind him. Nearly an hour in, they found themselves 17 miles behind enemy lines near a place called the Chosen Reservoir. As they moved in to provide ground cover for the troops... Tom on Jesse's wing, uh, they met heavy enemy fire and as they began to ascend to the skies to come back around, uh, Tom radioed Jesse and said, hey Jesse, there's vapor coming from your plane. Uh, Jesse checked his gauges. The fuel gauge was staying stable. So he looked to his oil gauge and the oil pressure was falling. Jesse knew that his plane wouldn't make it back to the aircraft carrier, and so he radioed to the rest of the squadron and said, I'm going to have to make a crash landing. So Jesse Brown began to move towards the ground, and the commander of the squadron said, everybody else to the sky, because they will circle. That's what they would do. They would circle when a pilot went down to provide protection. Guess who didn't join the circle? Uh, Tom Hudner. He followed on Jesse's wing as Jesse made his way. He found a place like it looked like a pasture covered in snow on this mountainside near the Chosen Reservoir, and he crash-landed his plane on that mountainside. And at the last moment, as Tom saw his friend land, he pulled back on this flight stick, and he shot back up and joined the formation. He heard the chatter on the radio. People were trying to get Jesse to respond. Jesse didn't respond. They continued to circle, and he heard over the radio the rescue helicopter was coming. There would be an hour before it arrives. They just keep circling and, and their wings are dipped and they're looking down and they're trying to see if Jesse is emerging from the crash site. Tom sees nothing. And so he breaks with command and risks court-martial, dips his wings and nose to the ground and flies in. He speaks over the radio that he's going to crash land his plane near Jesse's. So Tom flies into that pasture and he crashes his plane and can barely move, he's hurt, he's stiff, he emerges from his cockpit, he stumbles through the snow. Some people say it's the coldest winter that North Korea has ever had. They think it was probably about 17 below on that mountaintop. Deep snow, and, and Tom makes his way to Jesse's wrecked plane. He lifts the cockpit and smoke comes out and Jesse's able to dialogue with him and so Tom goes to try to get Jesse out of the seat and Jesse can't move. In the wreck, the fuselage of the craft had kind of pinched his leg. And 
So Tom scrambles back to his aircraft and gets on the radio and says, we need a, an ax on the helicopter. Well, the helicopter had to turn around to go back to get the ax. And so now Tom is trying to figure out what to do. And so he puts snow on a fire that's threatening to blow up the aircraft. And he keeps talking with Jesse, keeps trying to lift him out. And finally, the helicopter lands and the pilot comes over to assist. They bring the ax and they still can't free Jesse. And they don't say how long, but... After several minutes of trying to free Jesse and all their efforts, they looked to Jesse and he'd grown unconscious. He had died. So Tom goes with the rescue pilot to the helicopter and they take him back to a forward operating marine base. And then days later, Tom is taken back to the USS Leyte. He's sure he's going to be court-martialed. Uh, he steps out of the aircraft. He goes to salute the captain and the captain says, at ease. And he goes on to commend him for his courage and for his sacrifice, even though his friend died. And you think about their story, a white boy with incredible privileges from Massachusetts and a black man that knows prejudice and suffering from Mississippi. And the two shared such an uncommon friendship and uncommon devotion. And it was fueled by uncommon sacrifice. Instead of receiving a court-martial, uh, Tom would go on to receive the Congressional Medal of Honor, the first from the Korean War. Beside him, as he received that, was Jesse's widow, Daisy. His, his community of Falls River would throw a, a celebration for him, and they would give him a monetary reward. It doesn't sound like much to us today. The reward was $1,000, but if you adjust that for inflation, it's about 11300 bucks today. And instead of spending any of it, uh, Tom Hudner gave it all to Daisy so that she could get the education that Jesse desperately wanted her to get. And she became a, an economics, home economics teacher. Uncommon sacrifice. We look to the story of David and Jonathan and say, God, what can you teach us about friendship? Uncommon friendship, an uncommon devotion with encouragement and loyalty that requires uncommon sacrifice. And we see that uncommon sacrifice at play in the life of Tom Hudner and Jesse Brown. I think we're left to reflect on our own lives. Are we friends whose friendships are characterized by uncommon sacrifice? What will you sacrifice for your friends? Will you sacrifice having to be right? Will you sacrifice your comforts? Will you, will you sacrifice uh, the, the discomfort of leaning into a hard conversation to preserve a friendship? Will you sacrifice your preferences? Uh, will you sacrifice having to share your opinion in just the right moment? Will you, will you sacrifice your time? Will you sacrifice your energy? Will you sacrifice your resources? Will you sacrifice by offering forgiveness? What will you sacrifice that you can experience the uncommon devotion that marks uncommon friendships. Throughout this series, we've ended each message the same way. Because we can look to David and Jonathan and we can say, show us what it looks like, God, to be friends. You've, you've preserved this in your word for a reason. But we also know that David was a man for God's own heart. And we have something even better in Jesus. Not that he was a man after God's own heart. He had God's own heart. And we see that, da that, that Jesus... 
demonstrates the characteristics of friendship in full. He was loyal. He was encouraging. And he was a man of sacrifice. In fact, in John chapter 15, he calls his disciples friends. You may recall this. He says, I call you friends. And just before that, he says this, John 15, verse 13, that greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. There's no greater love than this that someone would sacrifice by giving up their life. And we know the rest of the story, don't we? Jesus gave it all for his friends. Jesus gave it all for you so that you could be a friend of God's as you believe, as you have faith, as you repent and turn to him and he shows you a better way, the best way, and he fills you with life. He fills you with the spirit and he helps you become the same type of friend that he has been to us, a friend who will sacrifice We name this series Friend Request. We're playing off of what you see on social media. But what do our friends need of us? They need people who follow the example of Jesus. People who follow the example of David and Jonathan. People who will be encouraging and loyal and sacrificial. That's what the world needs. And that's what we need. Let's pray. God, I thank you. I thank you that you preserved David and Jonathan's friendship for us to teach us. God, I thank you that even, what, close to 3,000 or so years later, um, we continue to hear stories and see stories and experience stories of powerful and beautiful friendship. And God, I pray that you would help us to respond to you and your offer of friendship. And as we do, that you would help us be the type of friends that we see in scripture, the type of friends that we've seen in Tom and Jesse's life today, uh, that we would be friends who are marked by uncommon sacrifice. It's in your name we pray, amen.